Just a reminder that we're still trying to hit 850 Patreon subscribers. So if you aren't a patron, now's a great time to do it and get our lengthy back catalog of 300-plus Patreon-only episodes. And if you do it before January 1st, you will have your name read out with everybody else in the mega Patreon thank you. And you will also get a special gift that will only be available to patrons that subscribe by that point. So if you don't subscribe, you will not get this special Patreon gift. And it's a fun one. So join now at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. Hello, my name is Justin McClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan, reporting to you from London, Ontario, folks. Ho, 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 and you're with Santa Claus, Will! Oh, no. Have you been naughty or nice? I, I, I tell you where I've been. Christmas is a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December, don't you think, Santa? Oh, you sound like a real Scrooge, Will. Folks, there have been dozens upon dozens of screen adaptations of A Christmas Carol. Here is a partial list of people who have played Scrooge or Scrooge-like characters. George C. Scott, Patrick Stewart, Bill Murray, Kelsey Grammer, Jack Palance, Mickey Mouse, Mr. Magoo, Yosemite Sam, Daffy Duck, and Fred Flintstone. You're forgetting a very important one, Will. I'm shocked you haven't seen Rich Little's Christmas Carol. Oh, man. Where Rich Little plays every role. It was produced by the Canadian (laughs) Broadcasting Corporation, made in 1978, and listen to this cast. W.C. Fields as Ebenezer Scrooge. Paul Lind as Bob Cratchit. Johnny Carson as Fred. Laurel and Hardy as two solicitors. Uh, Richard Nixon as Jacob Marley. Humphrey Bogart as the ghost of Christmas past. Groucher Marx as Fezziwig. Aren't you just rushing out after this to watch that version? You know, a few weeks ago when Justin and I were coming back from Windsor where we saw Jay Leno, you can hear about that on our Patreon, uh, Justin had the idea of putting on some rich little comedy for us to listen to in the car. Uh, honestly nightmarish experience and apparently if you're in las vegas you can still see rich little every night uh doing impressions and going on right-wing rants Ugh, no thank you but a christmas carol is a classic but i had to ask myself this week when i watched the movies we did to kind of define like why is it so popular do i even like the story of a christmas carol do, do you not like the story of a christmas carol i want to i want to hear this i, I want to prod your thoughts on i this. think it's okay but the more i think about it the less i like it only because it's so ingrained in me and this may be why people like watching it they're just waiting for the beats to play out every time like all right now he's gonna do christmas past and the truth is that versions of the movie don't tend to stray very far from the basic structure that we all know. Well, uh, one reason I would say that this story has become so popular is that it's in the public domain. It was first published in 1843, so Ebenezer Scrooge is a very cheap IP, and it's become self-sustaining at a certain point. And I also believe that rich people can't have any kind of change of heart. I I knew we were going to hear that. Uh, I I knew the the class (laughs) resentment was going to come out at some point, uh, because I felt it too. I felt it too a little bit while watching this, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But, you know, people do like the comfortingly familiar at Christmas. People, People like rituals this time of year there are certain stories like the nativity story for example or it's a wonderful life is sort of the other great pop culture template you know you're you you could every sitcom is like what if urkel was never born you know that kind of thing. well those classic stories we go back to them over and over again because they have recognizable structures and that comfort comes out of that one thing i'll say is uh, i don't know if you've read the book lately but it's very good no i think it's very good yes very flavorful it's written with a slightly cheeky tone that's very enjoyable and you know all the adaptations have you know, at least a half dozen famous lines that you just love hearing over and over again, because that Dickens, you know, he he's a wordsmith. Yeah, he's a writer, if you will. Tiny Tim, who was not dead, which is an actual line from the book. <laughs> <laughs> Emphasis uh, as it is in the Muppet Christmas Carol. But I think it's just the movie versions. I wish there were more exciting stuff that were done with them, especially the classic versions. And that like watching them this week and even exploring a few other ones, I'm like, all right, all right, let's get through this. It should be noted though, that A Christmas Carol, 
as uh, something that's adapted, it's kind of like, you know, uh, big plays like Shakespeare, that it's not necessarily the author or the director of these movies, but it's the main actor that you describe the movie as. So it's like the Michael Caine version or the Muppet version of A Christmas Carol. You don't think, oh, yeah, the uh, Brian Henson version of A Christmas Carol. <laughs> Okay, well, first of all, I want to correct you uh, that people haven't done interesting things with this story. Are we not forgetting Ghosts of Girlfriends Past with Matthew McConaughey? Or such classic films, It's Christmas, Carol, starring Carrie Fisher? What about An American Carol, which was David Zucker's right-wing comedy, where the Scrooge-like figure was a Michael Moore-type documentary filmmaker, played by Chris Farley's less talented brother? (laughs) No Jim Belushi of the Farley clan. Was that a, no such thing as a bad movie at some point? No, or? we watched it at Mike Wood's house after we watched that great Groundhog Day Christmas movie with Kelsey Grammer where he dies at the end of every day and he has 12 days to like fix his Christmas. Because Kelsey Grammer, of course, is also in An American Carol. I also have to mention, of course, The Passions of Carol, the wonderful 1975 hardcore pornographic adaptation directed by Sean Costello with a moving a moving performance by Jamie Gillis as Bob Cratchit. I find that there is a lot of stuff you could do with this story. Like, I haven't watched it. I know there's a three-hour dark version of A Christmas Carol that is a TV miniseries that stars Guy Pierce, where at the end, Scrooge doesn't switch and you know change his mind because life sucks you know but he also says like i've done too many bad things like i can't change now (laughs) like i can do one thing but i can't you know switch it around but like even in like there's so much to play with and most adaptations don't stray too far away not specifically the text but from the structures that has been laid down from stuff like Scrooge 1951, a.k.a. A Christmas Carol, which we both watched for this episode. Right. So this one is often referred to as the definitive adaptation, even though it takes some noticeable liberties with the book. Uh, wait, what's this? It's it's in public domain because that has maybe something to do with the fact that it's one of the definitive adaptations. Yeah. So it was on TV all the time, you know. A lot. Madison Entertainment put it out on DVD. Some of the changes it makes from the book are that it it creates a new backstory for Scrooge where uh, his mother died giving birth to him. So that, you know, created a, created an air of sadness around him from the beginning. The, the main thing that everyone talks about with this movie is the performance by Alistair Sim, who was 51 when it was made. He was a Scottish born actor, mostly active on the London stage, including performances of many of the great Shakespeare plays at the old Vic He was also a leading man in British film, although probably not a lot of movies you've seen. The ones people today might know are his supporting roles in Alfred Hitchcock's Stage Fright and The Ruling Class alongside Peter O'Toole. But a lot of movies, a lot of comedies you haven't heard of. And people should know as well that like, There had been other movie adaptations of A Christmas Carol before this version, including A Christmas Carol, 1938, which was the Reginald Owen version of the tale. The MGM version also, so it has that kind of gloss. But this is the one, when when people talk about the old Christmas Carol movie... This is what they're talking about. And I I do like this movie. I think it's very enjoyable. Uh, The director, Brian Desmond Hurst, who was, you know, a British journeyman, Uh, He brings, I think, a lot to the movie. The visual identity of it is very strong. Very gothic and kind of imposing in its presentation, which the story feels like it needs. Yeah, it has, you know, interesting compositions and heavy film noir shadows and a strong, chilly winter atmosphere. So there's uh, there's a lot about the movie that's really compelling on its own. The Alistair Sim performance, though, uh, I do think watching at this time that he really may be the best Scrooge that I've seen. He's certainly the most textured. Yeah, that like, it's not just like, I'm really mean the entire time and I'm going big because like the Scrooge role is an opportunity for any kind of Shakespearean actor to go full ham. Look at Patrick Stewart, for example, and the many times he's done it. But like, Alistair Sim just gets that kind of, you know, hooks in the audience that you buy into him having that kind of change of heart at the end of the story. And that's something that not all the adaptations are able to do. Well, there's a consistency in the characterization or there's a through line in it. It's not a simple like 
dichotomous switch from the mean Scrooge to the happy Scrooge. Which I do find sometimes, even in one of the movies we're talking about, that it feels like the, the Scrooge just switches instantly once he sees like, oh boy, I had a bad life. It sucked, didn't it? I want to be good now, but I got to go through all these other ghosts before I get there. So like in the early scenes, I don't think he overplays the dark side of Scrooge. Like you can tell that he kind of enjoys being bad. He's I think effortlessly charming in a lot of the movies. He's like, he smiles throughout, for instance, which not all the Scrooges do. And he's got a great face. He looks like a caricature of what we imagine Scrooge to look like. And like, he's got these huge eyes too, these gigantic Bambi eyes that are so expressive. And yeah, because he's like, he's funny at the beginning of the movie, which, you know, makes it more plausible or, or and, and like at the end of the movie, when he becomes good, like he has a bit of that, like annoying asshole quality to him still. And this version of Scrooge, it's interesting that this has become the classic version. There's nothing other than Alistair Sims performance that I feel kind of elevates it from what you would think a version of the story would need, but it just does it very well. It was in the public domain, so a lot of people saw it at formative ages, and it became their version of A Christmas Carol. And yeah, you're right. It's not, I mean, aside from some of the liberties it takes with uh, the the Ghost of Christmas Past stuff, it doesn't, it's not a revisionist take in any way. Like most of the ones that have come since, even though a lot of them aren't that imaginative, they all have a hook of like, well, what if Fred Flintstone was Scrooge? Or <laughs> what if Scrooge was Michael Moore? You know, um, th- this one is like the the most straight ahead one. Or what if Yosemite Sam was Scrooge? And it was 1979 and a aged Fritz Freeling was directing Bugs Bunny's Christmas Carol. Uh, it's funny you should mention that because just before we hopped on this call, uh, I treated myself to a 2006 production called Bah Humduck, a Looney Tunes Christmas. 2006? Yeah, yeah. I bet you've never heard of this one. No, I have not. I don't know. I, I watched it because I sort of like made up an excuse to watch it because I was like, oh, this is a Looney Tunes thing I've never seen, even though I know it will be bad if it's from the 2000s. And it, it's it's truly awful. It's like it's set at a big department store that Daffy Duck runs. And, you know, Daffy Duck is the Scrooge figure and all the all the gang works for him, like Porky Pig and uh, Speedy Gonzalez and the whole gang. And, uh, you know, uh, Bugs Bunny is a kind of wacky shopper who comes. And you know what I hate about it so much? This is a digression, but none of the people who make Looney Tunes stuff now understand that the looney tunes aren't friends no they're not friends they don't live in the same universe yeah exactly like there's no reason for pepe Le Pew to be at the same department store as speedy gonzalez they're completely different uh, and in fact both of them are canceled yeah <laughs> so they're not even allowed to appear in entertainment anymore <laughs> did you ever watch a mickey's christmas carol when you were a kid i did i don't have any of that fond memories because it's like mickey mouse he has no personality man i apologize to any listeners who grew up with that and love it and are banging their fist on the table being like god damn it show proper respect for mickey's christmas carol i'm sorry guys i can't love everything i'm sure a lot of people are banging their hand on their on the desk being like why don't they review the george c scott version or the albert finney version or the henry winkler version (laughs) we only got so much time in the day ladies and gentlemen but hey we will talk about the michael caine version that's 1992's a muppet christmas carol which i feel like for our generation and younger has perhaps even displaced the alistair sim version as the definitive one 100 percent if someone says, hey, you, you need to watch a version of A Christmas Carol, I'm like, put those Muppets on. Can we talk about how, just from a Muppet perspective, Brian Henson and the creative team on this movie understood exactly what needed to be done. They could have made it a goofy version where the Muppets play all of the ghosts, but they very consciously did not do that. They also do not make the movie into a joke like it's not a parody of a christmas carol it is just a christmas carol with funny characters in the sidelines i think the movie has the exact right amount of atmosphere it has that kind of princess bride quality where the tone is exactly as straight-faced as it needs to be and then and then no further but it also has like you know, much like the how the Princess Bride, uh, which has a kind of sketchy mise-en-scene, but has this like very earnest love story in the middle of it that's the anchor around which all the silliness is. Like this movie has 
the anchor of a very strong central performance and a Dickensian London that is, you buy it, but it's also not like oppressively atmospheric. No, well, it's all a backlot too, because they had to build it that way to have all of the Muppets appear and the performers as well. And you buy it instantly. And this is like Brian Henson showing off and using all these wild camera moves and having so many Muppets in the frame by linking it to a story we know, I think it just kind of makes it all that much more powerful as well of as, of course, Michael Caine as the greatest uh, human actor in any of these Muppet movies. Yeah, and I mean, everybody knows this. I don't even need to say this, but I'll say it. Uh, the movie's chief great creative decision is for Michael Caine, a great actor, to bring every ounce of his talent to the role of Scrooge. Did you know Michael Caine really wanted to do something with the Muppets and he's the one who put his name up for this movie. That's amazing. That, like he even wanted to be on the Muppet show and he was going to be at one point, but the schedules just didn't work and he wasn't able to appear. And he's like, please let me be. I mean, Michael Caine at this period in time wasn't riding too high, but like he's still Michael Caine. He doesn't need to appear in a Muppet movie. Well, I mean, one of the things that's easy to forget is like how much gravitas he brings given that all of his scene partners are puppets. Literally all of them, except for the nephew. Like, like that one, that early scene where uh, Kermit as Bob Cratchit comes in to ask for the day off, you know, the, the intensity with which Michael Caine treats Kermit as a scene partner in that, uh, it's, re- it's really something. And the story goes that Michael Caine went to Brian Henson and he's like, listen, I don't know what you want exactly from me, but I'm going to play this completely straight. I'm just letting you know right now. And Brian Henson was like, yep, that's exactly what I want you to do. And not everybody does when they're doing these Muppets things because you want to be like, oh, I'm like Kermit. I'm on this level. He's definitely the weepiest Scrooge that we've watched for this. He's the one who switches the fastest too. Where, like, after seeing the gross of Christmas past, he's like, oh, it was so terrible. Let me go. I'm going to be good now. But it's like, wait, wait, wait. We got two more ghosts for you to see. <laughs> like, we're going to go through it. And I mean, I think it's a it's a smart characterization. It's a smart interpretation of Scrooge where, you know, he's very vulnerable. He's the scowliest or, or not even scowliest, the sternest on the outside. But it's a hard shell over a very soft center, which is not exactly the same as what Alistair Sim does. Alistair Sim. There's that meanness throughout. Yeah. And it's like he's an asshole at the beginning and he's like a nicer asshole at the end, if that makes sense. I don't know for people who haven't seen this movie how you can like try to verbalize that Michael Caine somehow makes a scene work where Robin, the little Kermit, walks in or no, he's dead. And then Michael Caine's like, not Tiny Tim looking through a window and you're like, I buy it. You, you sold it, Michael Caine. No, I, fe- I feel very emotional watching him at some scenes in this movie. Like the whole uh, Ghosts of Ghosts of Christmas Future scene. I almost said Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. <laughs> Your favorite version of the story. I do like that in every version of the movie, the Scrooge is like, whose grave could this possibly be? Who is it? Yeah. It's mine. No! It's like, come on, man. I mean, I guess everybody ends up watching more than one version of this story every Christmas just by accident. But uh, I I will say that, yeah, by the time I was watching my fourth one of these, I I was... I was getting to be a bit like, okay, can we speed it up at the end? Like, it's it's him on the grave. It's him on the grave. It's him on the grave. And it's like, listen, we all die. I don't want to get into, like, literary analysis, but it all comes down to the actor because Scrooge is such a mean guy. Why would he become nice if you just show that people don't like him? He'd be like, yeah, I know. I'm a mean guy. Like, I'm not dumb. You, well, you want to know something? I'm sure, I'm sure uh, we all feel that certain people don't like us, and then when we get it confirmed, mm-hmm. it hurts. Even though that, you know, Scrooge is especially in the Muppet version so mean like he doesn't want to do anything for anyone well like any bully he gets his comeuppance very quickly and then uh, there's a moving scene where he gives like Beaker his scarf and it's like it's so beautiful it's like Michael Caine you're selling the scene all right let's move to the reason that we did this episode which is to watch Robert Zemeckis's A Christmas Carol a movie that on paper if you told me and Will in 1995 that Jim Carrey is going to do a Christmas Carol <laughs> and he's going to play like all the ghosts and Ebenezer Scrooge, I'd probably go like, this is going to be the greatest film of all time. From the director of Back to the Future. What if I told you instead, though, that the movie came out in 2009 when Jim Carrey's shtick was vacuum sealed <laughs> and uh, fresh as the day it was made? No. Well, you know what? Shtick. I wish Jim Carrey was doing any kind of shtick in this movie. Now, for people that are not aware, let's give a little bit of background of how Robert Zemeckis lost his mind. 
which is that he got into the mocap world, that he believed that motion capture, cr- you capture real actors on basically a big stage, you capture the information, and then Robert Zemeckis wanted to create, in his eyes, photorealistic versions of the actors, but now they could play anything. His example was, can you imagine we make a movie of Brown versus the Board of Education and Meryl Streep plays a child? To which I go, no, that sounds like a nightmare. Who would want that? Yeah, it's pretty monstrous. Now, listeners will, of course, know that uh, Robert Zemeckis's most successful, I guess, question mark, uh, at least financially, uh, experiment in this realm was the Polar Express with Tom Hanks. You know, in the original version, Tom Hanks played every role, even the children, and he did a voice and everything, and they dubbed it at the last minute. That's monstrous. All I can say is that whenever I mention the Polar Express to anybody, Everybody I know, anytime I've ever heard it referred to, it's always been a shorthand for that horrible animation style, that freakish, <laughs> uncanny valley. Dead eye. Uh, monstrous. Yeah, like, hate it. You know, get it off the screen. And he made two more experiments, Beowulf and this, A Christmas Carol. And uh, yeah, it is a straight ahead uh, CGI motion capture animated version of the story with Jim Carrey playing all, most of the roles and Gary Oldman playing some others. And Carrie Elwes playing some roles as well. Speaking of the Princess Bride. Bob Hoskins is in there too. So the story goes that like uh, Robert Zemeckis presented this at a Disney kind of like shareholders meeting and the crowd went wild because he was like, Jim Carrey, A Christmas Carol. Disney does not have its IP Christmas thing that they can monetize every year. I'm going to give it to you. And the shareholders were like, woo! Like they couldn't get enough of it. And then, I mean... Me and you, we did not see this theatrically when it came out. Like, we're not rude. Au like, contraire. Oh, Au contraire. <laughs> I saw this theatrically. I did not. But you did? Yeah, and I hated so it. So you're putting your 3D glasses on. You're ready to go. Like, what is Robert Zemeckis, the master behind such films of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, going to bring to A Christmas Carol? And what did you see there play out on screen, Will? Well, the first problem I would identify is this movie has a bit of Jack Frost disease where the central character is so hideous to look at that you can't <laughs> you can't quite get around that. Wait, do you think that the Michael Keaton classic Jack Frost, the snowman, looks hideous? Oh, yeah. You, you don't think so? Oh, I think he looks cute. I mean, Michael Keaton in that movie is the coolest man on the planet Earth. He's in like a jazz band, and the movie starts with a five-minute rendition of like, Frosty the Snowman! De- deck the halls with boughs of holly. This 49-year-old man who the film is about him getting a record contract. Yeah. Sorry, I just watched that movie recently for no such thing as a bad movie, so it's fresh in my mind. I've never seen Jack Frost all the way through, but I've seen parts of it many times, just on TV. Jim Henson, uh, creation, that snowman. But yeah, the Jim Carrey Scrooge, I mean, he is photorealistic at times. It kind of goes in and out. Like, the whole movie has that dead-eyed... A glassy, uncanny quality that all these movies soulless. have. Yeah, soulless and, and evil and you hate it. But any any close-up of Ebenezer Scrooge <laughs> with his horrible nose and his horrible, sweaty, misshapen face, it's just awful. So did you see it in 3D and you were like, ah, every time that nose was like coming at you? Yeah, absolutely monstrous. Okay, the actual worst thing in this movie, though, even worse than old Ebenezer Scrooge, is young Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> Like, like when you get the flashback of the young Jim, it's like Jim Carrey's face. If you know, at the beginning of Super Mario 64, when you can adjust how Mario's face looks, you can stretch Mario's face with your cursor. That's what, that's what young Jim Carrey looks like. I think this may be honestly one of the ugliest movies we've ever talked about. Like from top to bottom, Bob Cratchit in this movie is like a little goblin man. And some of the ghosts, the fact that you can kind of see a bit of Jim Carrey and the ghosts. Oh, like the ghosts of Christmas past where you're like, what is going on here? The fact the fact that you can recognize him, but also it doesn't quite look like him is a horrible space to be in. And so this is a pretty close adaptation. For example, the ghost of Christmas past actually appears as a flame, which is how it's described in A Christmas Carol. And like Jim Carrey also puts that flame out which happens in the original story. What doesn't happen in the story is 
endless sequences of Ebenezer Scrooge, as played by Jim Carrey, being like, whoa, and going on like boring roller coaster rides where he shrinks into a little man and like rolls around on a bottle for no reason. Yeah, that's what this story really needed was to be turned into like a CGI action children's film. Just horrible and wretched but you can imagine like i think one of the things that robert zemeckis thought that he was doing with this technology was you can take you know a popular actor and make them play roles that they could never play if it was just a live action film jim carrey could have easily played ebenezer Scrooge, just slap some makeup on it he did it in a series of unfortunate events like he was basically playing a character like that i completely agree but i think this is robert zemeckis's thinking i think robert zemeckis was like we are expanding the actor's toolbox with this he can play a photorealistic old man now no makeup required no suspension of disbelief required and uh i think it's a terrible idea i, I first of all i I don't think Jim Carrey should have played this role even if he did have just makeup on because it's a horrible casting. If you did not tell me it was Jim Carrey, I wouldn't know. Like, just from mannerisms and acting style, it could have been anyone playing this role. Yeah, and also, like, why not just cast an actual older man? It just makes more sense, right? You know? Uh, And if you are going to cast Jim Carrey, maybe play to his strengths. Because he's not an old man, uh, because he's not this kind of old man, the whole part is played in quotation marks, you know? There's a sort of distance between him and the character that is is never filled. But he's not funny either. No, that's the problem, is this movie is not funny at all all there's no warps no emotion in this film which begs the question of what was anyone thinking like what did they want to get out of a christmas carol right because jim carrey is so drastically miscast and because jim carrey is like known as a comedian and because he's not like he's he's not naturalistic in this role your assumption is like oh well he's gonna like he's gonna be funny and maybe he's trying to be funny it's not like when he plays the grinch he's trying to be funny obviously oh, oh yeah trying is doing a lot of heavy lifting <laughs> trying i i use my words deliberately justin <laughs> what do you mean him doing faces like oh, oh, mm? I mean, I'm laughing just thinking about it. Uh, don't make me watch The Grinch again, please. Uh, I, I probably like this movie more than The Grinch just because The Grinch is like staring into a sewer, but I don't know. <laughs> oh, man, that's a bold claim. What would I rather watch, The Grinch or A Christmas Carol? Oh, God, they're both so awful. <laughs> I feel, though, that... A Christmas Carol is kind of looking into a black hole and the Grinch is kind of staring at a car crash. Yeah. And we slow down when we get by car crashes. So I'd probably want to watch the Grinch again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. There's there's no A Christmas Carol is Teflon. There's kind of no no approaching it in a way. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the Grinch, good good God. Good God, like Baby Grinch? <laughs> I mean, a lot to laugh at. But there. yeah, it, it is interesting. It's a movie that, the, the Christmas Carol is a movie that is like torn between wanting to do like an interesting Jim Carrey take on the character and then also wanting to make, mm-hmm. wanting to make the definitive one, wanting to do absolutely nothing creative with it at all. And as a result, you get nothing. You you hear that it's going to be like a motion capture movie and you'll think it'll be hyper stylized and they can do stuff that like is interesting within the context of the story. But what it just means is that there's like long tracking shots with impossible camera moves. Did you ever read A Christmas Carol and you wish the camera would swoop through, you know, someone giving out hot chocolate or like roasting chestnuts and go through all of... No, nobody wants that because it doesn't mean anything. So like, stop it. Like, that's the thing that Robert Zemeckis doesn't understand. Like, he loves magic tricks. He loves doing them in his movies, but they only work and are only interesting in the context that we don't know how they did them. That's why they have an effect if you are conscious of them happening. But if you're doing in CGI, it means nothing. It's tethered to nothing. So it's just empty. And it sucks to watch all of these movies. I could not agree more. But before we leave, returning to why is A Christmas Carol uh, such an oft-repeated story, aside from it being in the public domain, I would say first, it's got a perfect five-act structure, like nothing I've ever seen before. Like, it's the ultimate five-act structure. There's also no conflict in the story. Because Ebenezer Scrooge as a character makes a change at the end, but that's all. Throughout the rest of the film, he is just an observer. And I think there is comfort 
in there for people. The conflict is within Ebenezer Scrooge himself. And, you know, this time of year can tend to be reflective. It can be melancholy. It's a time where we take stock of how things have changed. We remember the people and things that used to be here with us, uh, the things that we have now. And I think the Dickens story, of course, captures the complexity of those feelings without ever really calling attention to it. You know, the book is quite breezy. It's barely over 100 pages. It packs a lot of feeling in there. And also, I think... You know, there's uh, the thought that somebody can completely change their life for the better late in life is a is a very resonant uh, idea that um, uh, endures. But people shouldn't buy into it. Look at the world as it is now. Look how popular Christmas Carol. It's done nothing for us. Nothing. Well, there's a bit of wish fulfillment, too, isn't there? Don't you wish you could choose, you know, insert bad billionaire or politician here and have them be visited by three ghosts to show Shut them out of a cannon. the error of their ways. And then at the end, murdered. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be a good version of the thing. That would be nice, wouldn't it? So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Charlie, and he goes, Hey, Will and Justin, firstly and most importantly, when I was driving out of Augusta, Georgia, I saw a sign for the Laurel and Hardy Museum and knew that you two needed to be informed in case you ever make it all the way down there. I didn't make it, but I am sure it's as good as the Stooge Museum. Will, road trip. I would love to. Let's do that at some point. You know, I believe there are two different Laurel and Hardy museums. There's one in there's one in Georgia, which is where Hardy is from. But there's also one in, you know, rural England where Stan is. We from. need to visit both. I want to get my card stamped at both of them. Let's let's do it. I don't I think we might have to take a plane over to England. I don't think we can road trip. It all there. tax deductible. <laughs> it's all podcast. Yes. Content. <laughs> hey, it might actually be. Let's uh, let's brainstorm this. The letter continues to give this question a little bit more heft i have a timely matter that i hope you can settle as people who have programmed movie series in casablanca rick says it is december 1941 it's also a movie about regret and loneliness that ultimately has a hopeful ending is casablanca a christmas movie would it be appropriate in a christmas movie marathon or would that be exploiting a technicality for an excuse to rewatch casablanca thanks all for all you do particular the podcast charlie is casablanca a christmas movie no. Could you put it in a Christmas marathon? Yes, sure. You can put whatever you want in a Christmas marathon. Expand on that, because I know what you think, but why do you think Casablanca is not well, a Christmas movie? Well, uh, for me, you know, talking about it a lot, if you want something that is a Christmas movie, it needs to take place for the majority of the time around Christmas. If it doesn't, I don't consider that a Christmas movie. It's a holiday movie. It, you can play it during the Christmas season, but I would not call that a Christmas movie, even though it takes place in December. So I basically agree with you, but uh, one caveat or two caveats I would add are that one, people like the comfortingly familiar at Christmas, and so Casablanca would fall. Casablanca falls into that category, and B, Casablanca has certain of those as the list, as the letter writer notes melancholy, regretful feelings in it uh, that are particularly prevalent around this time of year. So I would also say a Christmas movie can be whatever you want it to be. Yeah, you can watch any movie during Christmas. It can be your Christmas movie. But if I pick something up and it says a Christmas movie on it and it would be Casablanca, I'm like, what a great film. But that's not a Christmas movie, even though it takes place in December. That's all it comes. It's just semantics at the end of the day. But then again, we get back to what about It's a Wonderful Life? That's only Christmas in the last act. I said this on the episode that we did on Christmas movies for last week's Patreon. It's bookended by Christmas. It's a story being told. Technically, it takes place throughout Christmas. I've, I weasel my way into it being officially a Christmas movie based on the rules that I've given. And if people want to throw examples that are Christmas movies, you know, they don't all take place during Christmas, but blah, blah, blah. I will say, you are correct. You win. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got for that. <laughs> Our next letter is from Bart. And he goes, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Love going through the back catalogs as I work through my postal job. Boy, good luck during this holiday season, Bart. I'm sorry that... Uh, you are working for the post office when people I'm sure are very nice and understanding. 
I decided to write because I have just ordered the Vinegar Syndrome releases of Arthur Bresson's Jr.'s Pornos. I don't really collect Blu-rays, so I wanted to let you know that the good influence you are having on your audience. Good. Because I think that's one episode that we're like, we want people to buy these releases based on our episode. That's right. Forbidden Letters and uh, Buddies, his dramatic film about the AIDS crisis, is also a classic. The letter continues, I did have a question about the auteur theory because while I love certain directors and their style, I'm much more familiar with criticisms about novels that I'm about film and over there no one thinks for example Herman Melville is a lesser artist because he wrote hack boys adventure books or Joseph Heller is because he only wrote one great novel are the recurring preoccupations meant to be in the somatic content or the formal style does it have to be both Uh, I'm not that familiar with literary criticism but I think the auteur theory in cinema is only something that became prevalent because uh it is a team that does it, while a writer does have an editor, but it's just them alone. And also, are filmmakers looked down upon more if they did hacky stuff, but they have great work as well? I don't think well, so. Well, I, I, uh, I, I think what's important to remember about the auteur theory in film is that it was created... It's bullshit, number one. Nah, nah, don't listen to Justin. It was created in the context of the Hollywood studio system, which was uh, you know, done on an almost Fordist assembly process where the producer was considered God where the studio executives were considered God and where the director was considered a sort of hired hand who had all these elements handed to him by various other creative departments. You're also forgetting, though, that it was created by critics in France because they also wanted to legitimize films that they loved but wanted to prove, okay, look, they had these elements in them even though the directors are often kind of pushed over to the side. Now, were these people looking for attention? And sometimes their opinions were like, do you really believe that? Or are you just saying that because you want attention? Uh, yes, they did. And uh, Truffaut has said that in letters being like, uh, yeah, that's not attention grabbing enough. We need something a little bit uh, hotter than that. But like Will said, it's also to just thematic concerns in what is a kind of like factory line setting. And that's why it was created to, you know, give attention to that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, whatever their motivations were, I mean, the directors that those French critics highlighted really have endured as artists. They like Howard Hawks, for instance, somebody very much regarded as like an entertainer, a mere entertainer, uh, a mere craftsman. They did, you know, identify the authorial signatures in those works. Now, this is different in literature where, yeah, as you said, Justin, it's just like one person behind a typewriter uh, creating the book. Like, it doesn't really have to be decoded in literature. And I think as well that filmmakers, it's easier to consume their work. And so you can have more of a global opinion than like, you ain't reading those Herman Melville novels, so they kind of get forgotten and no one will talk about them because they're not being consumed. But you can look at the globality of a filmmaker's oeuvre and you can make more of a snap judgment that way. So the auteursery helps elevate them as well and say, oh, there's value in, well, most of the stuff that they did. I, I am uh, dogmatic about the auteur theory. You're Andrew Saris-like? Uh, actually, not necessarily. But, you know, I think it was Francois Truffaut in his first polemic about it. He put forward the idea that the worst movie by an auteur is better than the best film by a journeyman director. Um, and, and, and you're shaking your head. No, I don't agree with that. And Bertha Tavernier, the filmmaker and also a critic, went back and like all those filmmakers that like Truffaut was shitting on at the time, the Cinema du Papa, he elevated all those filmmakers and he was like, no, there is great stuff there as well to be discovered. He worked with a lot of those screenwriters during that period as well. The reason I brought this up is because I actually think there is something to that completely indefensible statement it's like what would i rather have on a desert island with me chaplin's a countess from hong kong or ron howard's apollo 13 now here's the thing apollo 13 objectively a very fine piece of film but you know if you're invested in the artist if you're interested in the artist's preoccupations sometimes the bad film by the artist can can be a richer experience to think about and ponder what would i rather have on a desert island a countess from hong kong or Martin Campbell's The Foreigner. <laughs> now, here's where it gets a little tricky, huh? Yeah. Yes. 
Because Ron Howard, yeah, of course. We don't like Ron Howard. <laughs> like, see the infamous episode. But you'll yeah. agree, you'll agree that Apollo 13 is probably better than The Foreigner on points. Yeah, but I'd ra- rather watch The Foreigner. But Martin Campbell is absolutely a journeyman director, yeah. though. Uh, so, okay, it goes for me. One, The Foreigner. Two, Accounts from Hong Kong. Three, the best <laughs> movie of the three, Apollo 13. Get it out Apollo of here. Apollo 13. Apollo 13 is never a movie I go back to. And I'm like, oh, I want to watch it again. Yeah, 100%. Exactly. I bet, I bet you've gone back to bad movies by directors you like. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, all the time. But there's journeymans that I like too, that they don't even really have an authorial presence, but I keep going back to their work. Again, we're getting into semantics of what a journeyman is then. Because journeyman could be just a TV director. In that case, it's like, yeah, I don't want to watch the movies that they make because they're just hitting those points. But then you have Poverty Row directors that were looking for that kind of that that shine in their you know metric ton of work. Well, the thing about those auteur critics is they they had such a rigid divide between the auteurs and the journeymen, the metteurs en scène. Whereas you know, like a lot of them, a lot of the early auteurist critics would dismiss Michael Curtiz, who directed Casablanca, and you know also did The Adventures of Robin Hood and Yankee Doodle Dandy and a million other great films. And uh, it's true that there doesn't see there are not recurring thematic preoccupations or even necessarily recurring like visual uh, signatures um but nevertheless what those what a lot of those movies have is it's not a surprise that yankee doodle dandy is directed by the same guy who did casablanca because they're both like fast-paced efficient hollywood movies by a good storyteller yeah, but there's like stylistic techniques and like kind of moves that he uses that you'll see repeat over and over again in his film so it's like if a movie's directed by michael curtiz i'll say oh nice michael curtiz even though it's not the same as when it's like oh oh nice it's howard hawks I never say, oh, nice, it's Ron Howard. <laughs> no, no. Ron Howard, a funny man. I do not like his films. I, I, one of the filmmaker I've been burned by the most doing this podcast because I was like, <laughs> I, want, I want to find something. I want to find something there. And I did not. So what are we doing on a Patreon this week, Will? Well, we're talking about a Christmas movie again. We thought it was time to cross an important Christmas blind spot off my list because I'd never seen it before. Justin had, and he'd completely forgotten about it. We talked about the only Christmas movie ever made by Jackie Chan. That's right. It's Police Story Lockdown. Folks, did you know that there was a Police Story movie made in the year 2013? (laughs) I bet you didn't (laughs) because it's bad. No, wait. Actually, I shouldn't reveal that. Uh, is it bad? You'll have to find out. Is it bad? <laughs> is it good? We'll find out uh, if you listen to the Patreon this week at patreon.com slash the important Samurai club. Next week, it's the holiday season. It's Big Denver, which we didn't mention at the beginning of this episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. Big Denver. Which means we're... Do- <laughs> <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Fee-fi-fo-fum. I'm here for Big Denver's. Boy, there's one word that rhymes with what I just said, and I want to say it, but I'm not going to because we're a clean podcast. Uh, We're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings, ladies and gentlemen, a film series that I love, but will a little bit colder on, right? Will? means nothing to me, although I did visit Hobbiton in New Zealand last year, so uh, very excited to uh, put put a movie to a face, you know? <laughs> well, you're not watching the Hobbit movies, which I believe that Hobbit uh, tin is from. Well, they also shot Lord of the Rings there. They shot Lord of the Rings, then they came back over 10 years later to shoot the Hobbit there. Well, it's not the same Hobbit holes that they built because they tore all that stuff down. It wasn't a standing set when they did the Lord of the Rings films. Th- that, that's that's fine. I was on the grounds. I saw the fields. <laughs> yeah. I, I was on... I was this Hobbiton. is the nerdy stuff I... you're going to get in the episode as Justin, the Lord of the Ring nerd, <laughs> movie nerd, comes in and uh, talks about these films, which are very important for me as a kid. I remember my dad saying, oh, yeah, we went and saw Return of the King without you. And I was like, no, when it came no. out. Uh, so I know that you'll be watching some of them with your partner, Dancy, who is a fan and is the one who brought you to Hobbiton, that, right? Yeah, I didn't go on my own. I did not cross the ocean to go to Hobbiton <laughs> out of my own free will, no. Do you think that watching it through the eyes of your loving uh, partner, maybe the movies will reveal themselves to you in a different way? Uh, yes, I will nod my head and I'll say, yes, that was nice. <laughs> All right. Well, that's what we'll be talking about next week. And until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. And I would like to thank new patrons Clayton Flesher, Alex, Ethan Johnson, Richard Carpenter, Luster, Tanner Clark, Relaxock, Giallozilla, Ben Goldberg, Anthony Peretta, Sean Krush, 
Kale, Farnes, Under the Floorboards, Lisa, Matt Badshek, Uncle Frankie, Samuel Longstone, Pedro, and Peter Jern. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. It's Christmas time, Will, which means presents. And when I think of presents, I think of boxes of stuff, and which made me think of box sets. Did you know, Will, that one of your favorite movies of all time is coming to Blu-ray in a box set? And that is Charlie Chaplin's A Countess from Hong Kong. What? Tell me more. But do you know which box set is the central conceit that it's appearing on? Take a guess based on the movie. It is not Chaplin. Well, my first guess would be the Marlon Brando collection. You are correct. There's a Marlon Brando box set that includes One-Eyed Jacks, another Sidney Lumet film on there, and A Countess from Hong Kong. Will you be buying the box set just for those for those for that movie? Well, um, it is the Sydney Lumet movie, The Fugitive Con. It is, um, and it's got One Eye Jacks on it too. You say, yep. Don't you have the Criterion version of One Eye Jacks already? I I do, I do. So uh, to answer your question, yes, I will be buying it just for the Blu-ray of A Countess from Hong Kong, a movie I've seen at least five times and that I have never enjoyed. It also includes Sayonara from 1957, which I'm not familiar with. Oof. Uh, also, The Ugly American and Bedtime Story, which I've never heard of either. They're, by all accounts, they're bad. If folks don't know, A Countess from Hong Kong was Charlie Chaplin's last movie. It was made in 1967, you know, the year of Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate. And it was greeted at the time as a, an, an embarrassment. Chaplin himself was in his late 70s at the time, making him just about the oldest person to ever direct a movie up to that point, like pretty much. Um, I mean, film history was younger at that point. Now, every director is 77. I mean, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese is 110, for God's sake. But at the time, Charlie Chaplin was like, it was unprecedented that somebody that old would direct a movie. And the critics tore it apart. They were like, this is so, this is such a moldy, uh, pedestrian film. The camera work is primitive. The color is terrible. The actors look like they want to be anywhere else. There's no chemistry between Marlon Brando and Sophia Loren. Marlon Brando, who's supposed to be a light comic lead, spends the whole movie looking like he has indigestion. It's so lame. It's so unfunny. And those critics were and are correct unfortunately oh my god i'm looking here at the special features there is a new interview with michael medwin an interview with carol cleveland an inter- interview with assistant editor editor brian sinclair and also interviews with the crew who could still be alive that worked on that movie oh, holy oh my god oh my god okay i have to buy this immediately can you believe justin can you believe there are people on this earth Worked with Charlie Chaplin. That's insane. But as we've discussed um, earlier in private, that like the people interviewed at that age are usually like, whoa, what happened? Uh, yeah, it was bad. Marlon Brando was me. <laughs> that's probably what's going to come out of it. <laughs> but for you, this is what will sell the box set for you, which I believe is like $180. Oh, God. <laughs> but we as collectors of physical media... They're going box set crazy right now, like all these companies, that they're putting out box sets. Do you find yourself purchasing a lot of them as they're coming out? Yeah, you're nodding. So, yes, but yes, but actually less than I, I did or want to. Because, I mean, there's one that's driving me absolutely insane. Shout Factory keeps putting out these Shaw Brothers collections. I pulled the plug on that. I said, after number two... No more. There's too many of them. I can't do well, it. It's like they come out with one every three months and they all have 10 movies on them and they're all like 200 bucks almost. And it's like, I'm sorry, I, I can't afford it. I truly can't afford it. And it's and they do the worst job. No curation either. They're just like, whatever movies we have, here you go. Take it. No curation, no extras. They're just buying up these movies so other companies can't get them. And yeah, it's, it's terrible. Like, I, I, I want those. I want them. If somebody listening can please send me these box sets for free. <laughs> no, 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 wait. Yeah, both to me and Will. Yes, absolutely. Look in the address of this uh, episode. We have a post op- post topic box. <laughs> but like, the thing about these box sets is clearly the pool of people buying stuff is very small. And so like companies have decided we're going to squeeze them for everything that they've got. And it's really funny now that box sets like, there's one recently I was looking at and it was called Peter Cushing Curiosities. <laughs> And I'm like, they're flying off the shelf. 
So it's like they can still keep putting these on and people are buying them because they have recognizable things in them. You know, one that I've never dipped into is Vinegar Syndrome's ongoing series, Forgotten Giallos, which the minute they called them Forgotten Giallos, I thought, I bet they're forgotten for a reason. Yes, that they're probably not that good. You know what sells the most are the noir box sets. They're up to number 16 right now, one of those noir collections. And I was talking about this with Mark Hanson on the Base Video podcast, like... You could just repackage noir movies that have appeared on previous box sets, and the people buying probably would not even know. Number one, because noirs can kind of mingle together when you're getting into the real deep cuts. Number two, no one is watching all of those movies. I will say, though, I do want to highlight box sets that are really good, like the one that Severn Films put out that uh, Kayla Janice worked on, the uh, folk horror box set. Did you pick that one up? No, I didn't, even though I probably should have. I mean, by all accounts, it's really good. Yeah, All the Haunts Be Ours, a compendium of folk horror. It's 14 discs. It's an amazing tour through world cinema of stuff you've never heard of. And that's that's the thing, stuff I really love, where it's like, all right, let us take you through a journey through all of these different things. What I don't love is people being like, I don't know. Here's some horror movies, you dummies. You're going to buy it anyway. You like this stuff. I mean, uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, because I'm sure we'll do like a best of the year episode. But since I said something mean about Vinegar Syndrome. Oh, the Lost Cinema box Yeah, set? The, the Lost Picture Show box that they've put out, which I haven't oh, really cracked into yet. It's but beautiful. But it's a thing of beauty. And, the you know, 10 or so like actual Lost movies, some by significant filmmakers that they've dug up. Yeah. But some of them, like, what's really great about that box set is in the booklet, they're very honest being like, "Eh, this movie's not very good. (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. There's like a Joe Sarno one. And it's like, wow, you guys found a lost Joe Sarno? I have another hundred Joe Sarno films here that you haven't watched that you can also check out. (laughs) Uh, But there's a lot of films on those ones that are like by one-time filmmakers. And that's the fascinating stuff. That's what I love. Like put that on a box set because I want to check it out. Genre stuff like, hey, we got more um, Lost Giallos or Forbidden Giallos, Volume 7. It's like, oh boy, Volume 7. I just wanted to bring this up because I find it funny that all these box sets are coming out. And it's like, I think the Shaw Brothers one is the one where... Like, if you had told me this 10 years ago, I'd be like, I'd buy them all. No problem. But they're too expensive and they come too often. So it's easy to disconnect from it and go, well, I can't afford that. I don't need it, I guess. And then if you do keep buying them, they just pile up on your shelf because you don't necessarily want to watch Shaw Brothers movies every single day, one after another. What is the ultimate box? Like, you wish someone would make a box set that would have, like, a certain number of things on them. Edgar G. Ulmer blu-ray box set i would love that that's it you took the exact words out of my mouth i'd like an edgar g ulmer set that is uh comparable to the ones that have been done about like ray dennis steckler or uh oh. ingmar bergman for that matter like can you imagine like the criterion bergman box but for edgar g ulmer and it's got the best elements of all his movies from like the yiddish movies to the prc ones to like hannibal and beyond the time barrier is it ulmer estate that is creating difficulties there preventing anyone from doing because david callett did a great set on dvd through his all-day entertainment of edgar g ulmer i don't think it's the ulmer estate in fact i think the ulmer estate has done uh has been known for like doing as much work as possible to like find the elements and make them available i think what has stopped it from hap what has stopped more great ulmer releases from happening is the fact that nobody cares. No one's buying them. Nobody cares. Although, hey, Kino is putting out Bluebeard. Did you see that? What happened to her sister's secret? They restored it like eight years ago when it played in theaters. I can answer that question. Nobody wants it. <laughs> but they released so much crap because it probably go through Kino, right? Right? Like you can put it out there. Ke- you know what Kino does? Kino picks up like library deals for like a couple of titles and then they have to put out its path yeah i could see like kino would never do anything like that but like arrow or other companies like you from the director of detour slap it on the front you would sell lots of copies i feel and the the, the honest thing is like most of his films are in the public domain as well whoever has access to the restored version of her sister's secret get in touch with gold ninja video <laughs> yeah i'll put it out no contest yes i would love to put that out i do know that another box set we've always wanted starring perhaps imitators of a martial artist is in the works it's been whispered for like decade but i know people that are working on it right now 
Me and Will are currently not. We would love to. And we're, we're like, please, please let us. <laughs> but it is in the world. Now, that'll be an amazing set. So I'm very excited about that. But like, I don't need any Jackie Chan box sets. I have enough of those, please. No more. <laughs> Give us Edgar G. Ulmer and then William Bodine. Oh, yeah. The complete William Bodine. Every single film. All 190 of them or whatever. <laughs> the complete Frank Wisbar set. Yes, the, the complete Wisbar. <laughs> yeah. 